Good morning. Uh, my name's Tony. I'm going to read the passage that Pastor Benjamin's going to be preaching this morning. It's from John chapter 4, verses 1 through 26, and that's on page 835 in the Pew Bibles. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true, the woman said to him. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now here is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is God's word. With this time, children ages four through uh, kindergarten can be dismissed to, to Kira. She's back there. I'm going to teach a lesson. There's one more. <laughs> well, this morning, as 
Jeff was saying in his prayer, we are restarting all of our children's Sunday school classes. Um, But while our classes were on break this summer, we had more children in the sanctuary, especially during second service, and we talked of drawing pictures and collecting them, and uh, just the other day, the staff, we all stood in the foyer and just kind of looked at the panorama of pictures, remembering the summer and talking about our favorites. We we all had favorites. Um, They weren't always the best drawn, though, though some of those were true. Some of them, uh, at least my favorites, were those that were, were really childlike in the best sense of the phrase. Obviously, if drawing a picture during the sermon helps you, um, you're welcome to keep doing that all summer long or the rest of the fall and, and, and whatnot. We'll stop talking about it probably until next summer. But maybe in God's providence, we're, we're stopping at a good time because as we teaching through John's gospel, now we come to the story of the woman at the well, which is not... I guess it's PG as some of the other stories. Jesus, a holy man, meets with a woman alone who has a sketchy past. How are you going to draw that picture? And yet maybe this would be the good scene to draw because for all that could have gone terribly wrong, something beautiful happens. So would you pray with me one more time as we prepare to learn about this woman at the well? and the God who loves her. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, not just this woman, but we as a people are thirsty. Thirsty for water that only you can provide. Lord, I pray as we study this passage and reflect on this woman's story, we would also see our story. And not merely our story, but as we see this woman's, the invitation she's offered of living water that we too would drink in what you provide. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In literature and in film, we can speak of what we call the inciting incident. It's this event that puts a new story, a a whole new plot into motion. So you might have personal, so to speak, inciting incidents. Maybe it was the time your parents got divorced or the time you dropped out of college and it put this whole new story into motion. Maybe it was the time you found a lump in your breast and had to see a cancer doctor. For this woman, her inciting incident is This day when a thirsty stranger said, give me a drink. That one request puts this whole new story into motion. And we find out that she is also very thirsty, but in ways different than Jesus. I wonder if you've ever been really thirsty. A few weeks ago, there were some days that were 95 degrees, right? Maybe you were thirsty on some of those days. I had a friend a few years ago who spent some time in the military, and he told me that in his training, one of the, some of the instruction he received was that water, quote, is best stored inside the body. Like, that was part of his instruction, store the water inside your body. Now, I think part of that might be that it's easier to carry water inside you logistically than toting around a bunch of water bottles. That's part of it, but, but the point my friend told me that the instructor was making that 
was that thirst, extreme thirst, can make you do strange things. You might be in the desert and save the water that you actually need to be drinking because you never get to, quote, later, because you don't drink the water you had. Or you might try to drink something that turns out to be harmful. Years ago, when I was a kid, we, we had a dog. It was a very short period of time. Um, and one summer, I remember antifreeze that we had stored in the garage spilled on the garage floor. Now, nothing happened to our collie named Opie, thankfully. But I, I remember the lesson from my mother who just stressed like how dangerous of a situation that is. For a dog to be drinking antifreeze, just especially because it tastes so good to them, I, I don't think it's a coincidence that thirst is one of the major metaphors used in the Bible to describe our spiritual need. We're thirsty people, people who often drink that which does not satisfy and sometimes that which is harmful to us. Consider, it's been read it earlier, but consider what God says to his people through the prophet Jeremiah. This is Jeremiah chapter 2. You don't have to turn there, but I'll, I'll turn there and just read to you. Jeremiah 2, verse 13. Through the prophet Jeremiah, God says, to, says this, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and then he says, they have hewn out cisterns. That, that, that means to carve out wells for themselves. Broken cisterns, broken wells that hold no water. Two evils, Jeremiah says. First, forsaking God as our fountain. And second, drinking from broken wells. God's people, through their idolatry and through their rejection of him, they, they create their own wells and they're broken, God says. God is offering a fountain of flowing clear, clean, cold, life-giving water. But instead, God's people trade him for sludgy brown water that's not even drinkable. And these images of thirst and water and fountains and sludge and antifreeze become embodied in this conversation that Jesus has with this person we simply call the woman at the well. We don't even know her name. We know she's broken sexually. But what we'll see is that Jesus knows her, loves her, Let's look at the conversation in more detail. The, the story opens by giving us some background. Let me read verses 1 through 6 again, again on page 835, if you're holding one of these Bibles from the pew. Now when Jesus heard that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he, Jesus, left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now, last week in Pastor Ben's sermon, we had heard about John the Baptizer, as he's sometimes called, getting, and the, and the disciples of John the Baptist, getting worried about this Jesus guy who seems to be baptizing more disciples than his leader, their leader, John. Don't worry about that, John says, as a best man rejoices 
When a groom marries his bride, John the Baptist says, so I rejoice when, when the groom, the Messiah, marries his people. That's my paraphrase of John 3. But now it seems that it's not only John's disciples, the baptized, John the baptized disciples who are worried about numbers, now it seems that the Pharisees themselves are worried about how many people are following Jesus. So Jesus leaves. He goes north again to Galilee through the region of Samaria with a famous well established by a man from an Old Testament story named Jacob. Now, this is just an aside. This is just an aside, but I will point out that the narrator here, also called John, speaks of the historicity of Genesis, matter of fact. To the author, John, the one writing this gospel, as for Jesus himself, the events of Genesis are not fairy tales to draw a moral lesson from. They teach moral lessons, but they are facts, they're history. And speaking of history, history is pretty important for understanding our story here in John chapter 4. Nearly a thousand years before this conversation, at the well, a rift opened up in Israel as it split into two parts. In the United States, when we had our civil war, the North and the South, we Return to one united states. We reunited. When Israel had their conflict, they split into two parts and more or less stayed that way. The northern kingdom of Israel, was, when it established itself, it had its own line of kings. Sort of in parallel with the Davidic or the, the, the line from David, the David-type kings in the southern kingdom. Now, the southern kingdom, the, the, the nation of Judea or um, where Jerusalem was, they sometimes had good kings, they had a lot of bad ones, but they sometimes had good kings. The northern king, only bad kings all the time. And these northern kings established a secondary place of worship on another mountain, which gets referenced later in our passage. And when the nation of Assyria around the 700 BC came down and attacked the northern kingdom, they carried off a ton of those northern kingdom people off into Assyria, and it left in that land we call Samaria, um, a group of people that then became, at least in the mind of the southern kingdom, even less faithful to the Lord. And here comes Jesus. Through this hated region, a region that many Jews would have avoided in traveling to Galilee, and he sits with a woman from a hated people in the hottest part of the day. We're told it's the sixth hour, meaning noon, if it's going to be 95 degrees outside on some Saturday, you mow the lawn in the morning or in the evening, but not at noon unless you have to, unless your schedule dictates that, okay, I have to mow here at noon or 2 o'clock or 3 o'clock, the hottest part of the day. But in the desert, you don't draw water the hottest part of the day unless you have to. This woman, we presume, because of her past, had to. But not really just because of her past. Really, we would say because of her present. Either she didn't want to be around others or others didn't want to be around her or both. Jesus has asked her now for a drink. Look at how she responds, verse 9 through 15. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? In case we didn't know, the narrator puts in a line. 
for the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And truthfully, I wonder if that's really a parenthesis or if that's still her quote, that she knows that the Jews don't have any dealings with her. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring. So notice the difference. There's a well that you have to do work to get the water out of. But Jesus is saying here, The water I give him will become a spring, something that just overflows of water, welling up to eternal life. Verse 15, The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. One pastor described this request of Jesus for a drink of water in terms familiar to us from America's past. An evil time, a time when people made in the image of God had separate and not equal drinking fountains. It's as though this pastor, as he was retelling the story, says, Jesus walks up to a woman at a colored water fountain and asks to use her water bottle. That's pretty socially edgy of him. That's going to get some glares. And it does from the disciples when they come back. We'll talk more about them next week. They're off in town getting food and water. If I said Jesus didn't care about the glares, that could be the right way to say it. Jesus doesn't care in the sense that he's not like you and me. He's not so often trying to read a room, thirsty for approval. Jesus isn't like us in that he's always wondering how he's coming across and whether he's doing enough to make these people happy with not offending these people at the same time. Jesus isn't thirsty in these ways. He doesn't care. But it would be wrong to say that he doesn't care in the sense that he doesn't care about his reputation. Jesus will cross social boundaries to reach a person who needs to know him, who needs to know God. And he cares about that reputation, which is why we have the gospel history that we do have of Jesus crossing social boundaries over and over again to reach the farthest out even to the sexually broken. Indeed, forget for a moment just crossing social boundaries. Jesus is going to go to a cross to reach the farthest out, to reach and give the wayward and the outcast eternal joy. You can't be so far from Christ that he doesn't want you. That's his true reputation. It's scandalous. It's wonderful. You'll notice verse 12. Look at, look at some of the specific pronouns she uses here. So verse 12, let your eyes fall there. She speaks of our father, Jacob, who gave us this well. Notice the pronouns. Our father gives, gave us. 
She sees herself as part of this story of redemption, even though her personal life, as we're going to find out in a moment, doesn't reflect that. Maybe we consider her to be a lapsed Roman Catholic or a lapsed Baptist or something. Someone who grew up going to church on Christmas and Easter and has this sort of sense of the story of redemption and feels some sort of connection to it but personally doesn't understand it, doesn't feel much use for it. Maybe she's like some of you. Much to her surprise and confusion, Jesus offers her what he calls living water. And she says, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. There's an emphasis on this word here. So I don't have to come here. In the same way, the religious leader back in chapter 3 took Jesus seriously about being born again. This woman takes Jesus literally and misunderstands what he's offering to her in living water. But while she might not fully yet understand Jesus, she is intrigued. To her, she could only imagine living water as just disappearing and hiding in her shame. I just I don't want to have to come back here again at noon with all that stigma. But Jesus wants to give her more. He wants to give you more. And that's where the conversation takes an abrupt turn. Look with me at 16, 17, 18, and 19. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying you have no husband, for you've had five. And the one you are now, now have is not your husband. What you said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. (laughs) Go call your husband, he says. There's nothing comfortable about this conversation. It's awkward. It's charged. In the place of her greatest pain, Jesus pokes her finger, or his finger, I mentioned a few weeks ago as I was doing the pastoral prayer that this summer I had a small surgery to fix an athletic injury, and it was just four weeks ago, Monday, so four weeks ago, Monday, it was so small, it wasn't that huge of a deal in a sense, Um, but I had a surgery to fix some muscles kind of near my hip in my stomach, and and took a week off from work, and then I took another week off to recover at the beach, which was kind of a sweet place to do some recovery, Um, except that I kept continually having to feel like I would guard myself, kept worried I was going to like trip and fall and hurt myself and uh, I was going to bump into something, I was always worried someone was going to wrestle me, I generally don't go around with a fear that like someone's going to come up and wrestle me, but like when you're injured, you're like, no one better wrestle me right now, right, that's, that's, these are the sort of fears you have, right, you didn't look at me from the outside and think, okay, there's a guy who's tender, probably, probably, probably. But I was. So was this woman. And Jesus poked her. And he did it on purpose. Was that cruel? Or was it kind? He wanted to heal her. And he knew it was only in the light that she could be restored. 
What is God speaking to you about this morning that needs to come into the light to be restored? What sin are you tired of carrying? In the light of the gospel, it can heal. I don't have a husband, she says, which I guess is technically true. Jesus even agrees. He says, you're right. What you said is true. It's like if you asked me, have you read the novel Don Quixote? If I'm even saying that right, and I say, well, not in Spanish, (laughs) the original language. I haven't read it in Spanish. I haven't read it in English either. You read War and Peace? Well, not in Russian. (laughs) Let's see the browsing history on your smartphone, Jesus says. Oh, I haven't looked at one bad thing on the internet, you say. That's true, Jesus responds. You've looked at five hours worth, and you're living with someone who isn't your spouse. Living as a married couple when not married is a sin. Sexual intimacy is a gift from God, but only in its proper place. One man, one woman, in the context of marriage. And the woman blurts out, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place we ought to worship. That's her, right after her prophet line. That's what she just, she just blurts out. Something about a mountain and worship. We don't know if her response was a way to change the subject. Like, this is getting uncomfortable. I need to change the subject. Or maybe she sees what is to her this obviously religious man and she's trying to grab some strain of the religion that she sort of understood and, 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 and kind of, I don't know, we can talk about religion. I can do that. Maybe it's sort of like she's saying, well, in Catholicism, we believe the bread and the wine become the actual body and blood of Christ, but, but you Protestants say Jesus is only spiritually present there? I, I don't know. But what we need to do here is talk about our world for a bit. We need to talk about our world. We have a schizophrenic view of sex that leaves us exhausted. Our culture views sex as both everything and nothing at the same time. On the one hand, we're told that we must live out what we perceive to be our deepest identity, often our sexual identity, However, we would understand that, and if we were to suppress that, our deepest understanding of who we are or curtail it in any way, then we are suppressing our very essence, which is a way to say that we view sex as everything. But on the other hand, we, we, we treat it as nothing. It's just people hooking up, just bodies coming together. In this category, we have pornography, which takes something sacred like diamonds and makes it as common as gravel. That's our schizophrenic view of sex. It's everything and nothing, and we're exhausted. I I don't know which view this woman had, everything or nothing. Maybe she had both. But we see she's thirsty and exhausted. We don't know what role she played in her misplaced thirst, whether men just kept throwing her away or whether she kept running away. Regardless, no one has five failed marriages without physical, emotional, and spiritual trauma. She's thirsty for living water, and so are some of you. You might be trying to satisfy your thirst in other places. Maybe it's getting the approval of a boss. Maybe it's getting into the right college and and just manicuring your grades and your resume to get approval of some college advisory board. Maybe now a school is starting and you're 
going to make sure you can fit in with the in crowd and, and whoever you would perceive that to be. Maybe you're a new teacher and you're trying to figure out, okay, what do I need to do to just get everybody's approval here? Some of you drink excessive amounts of alcohol because you realize you've hit the middle of your life and your life is never going to become what you had hoped it would become. Some of you know I enjoy writing as a hobby and in my best moments see it as part of my ministry, but I can tell you that it's so easy for me to view writing as this way to stack up accolades, but even more than that specifically, to find myself sort of in this in crowd, however I would understand it at the moment. And these thirsts are really thirsts to know God and to be satisfied in knowing him. Look, look at how our passage ends, verses 23 through 26. Jesus says, The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. We'll talk about that verse next week more. Verse 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must Worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things, probably drawing from Deuteronomy 18. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I titled the sermon, I don't know if you saw it in the bulletin or when we emailed out on Friday, Samaritan Woman. Um, some of you may have read that and thought it was a typo. Um, it's supposed to be a play on words. Um, my brother's a good musician, and uh, he and his wife years ago made an album based on themes from the Gospel of John, and the song they wrote together and um, put on the album, it's just a small thing. You can go find it on Bandcamp. <laughs> it's still there. Um, and, uh, but they titled the sermon on John 4, Samaritan Woman. I think probably from the, you know, the iconic rock song, American Woman, but bringing together kind of as a metaphor this American experiment we've been in for the last few hundred years and this woman from Samaria, not over, doing the wrong thing of overlaying American in the Bible, they're not doing that. But I did think it was clever. And this song, they sing as a duet. And my brother's wife, echoing the words of the woman, sings the lines, it seems that nothing can fill this void. The cup that I fill will be emptied again. And then asks rhetorically, when will the stability stay and something of substance hold? My brother sings back, echoing the words of Jesus, the cup that I fill won't be emptied again. At the hottest part of the day, Jesus pursues this unnamed woman traveling through a hated region full of people hated by Jesus' peers so that he can sit with her and offer her a cup that won't be emptied again to offer her living water. In fact, if you let your eyes just for a moment go to verse 3 and 4, you see something fascinating. This inciting incident that actually felt random to her was this divinely made appointment. Maybe this morning is something of an incited or inciting incident for you, a divine appointment. We read in verses 3 and 4, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to, we read. He had to pass through Samaria. Had to? What, what does it even mean? 
All of Jesus' peers would have gone around Samaria. What does that mean he had to? Jesus had to do this hard thing just as he had to go to the cross and die. The love of sinners was costly for Jesus, but it was worth it to him. He doesn't stay dead. He rises again, and now this Messiah offers living water, not merely to Samaritans or Americans, but to the whole world and to anyone and everyone, including you, to anyone who is thirsty. In this week's sermon, we see how God pursues people. Next week, we come back, we're going to look at the second half of the story and see that the way that when Jesus pursues someone, they then become those who then pursue others on God's behalf. So I'm going to pray and invite the worship team to lead us in one more song. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, I think that word my brother and his wife used in that song about stability is a good one for us. We might not think in terms of thirst, but maybe in terms of instability, the world around us, the world within us, and you are offering us a word that holds, a firm foundation, living water, Not merely that we have to go into a well and labor and draw out, but that overflows even as it pours into us. Lord, I pray for us this morning that we would taste and see that you are good. In Jesus' name we pray.